The itsy bitsy spider climbed up the water spout. Down came the rain and washed the spider out. Out came the sun and dried up all the rain. And the itsy bitsy spider climbed up the spout again. So our last episode was about bats, and today's episode, in keeping with our Halloween theme, is going to be about spiders. And I was thinking about the nursery rhyme, Little Miss Muffet. Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. Now, just like Miss Muffet, most people's reaction to spiders is one of fear and revulsion, and, like other things that we fear, many people's first instinct, unfortunately, is to kill it quickly and decisively. And if you don't believe me, share a picture of a spider that you found in your house on any social media platform, and I can almost guarantee that at least one person will say something to the effect of just burning your house down. But I've got bad news for all the spider haters out there. Unless you're living in Antarctica, there's probably a spider within 10 feet of you. Yes, right this second. Ah! But before you squash that spider or plan a move to Antarctica, you should know that spiders fill an important ecological niche, like controlling pests, for instance. Spiders also have some amazing abilities, One genus of jumping spider displays remarkably intelligent hunting behavior, showing the ability to both problem-solve and learn, traits normally associated with much larger animals. So, as long as you're surrounded by spiders, you might as well learn to appreciate them. Let's take a closer look at the amazing, the talented, the oft-maligned spider. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. There are somewhere around 49,600 species of spiders in the world. All spiders belong to the class of organisms known as arachnids, but not all arachnids are spiders, despite the fact that the word arachnophobia means a fear of spiders. Spiders are certainly the largest order that fall under the arachnid class, but other orders in this class include scorpions, ticks, mites, and harvestmen. Now, I want to talk for a minute about harvestmen, both because they're interesting and because they're often mistaken for spiders. And since they're not, in fact, spiders, but are still arachnids, they give us a great example of the difference. If you've spent any time in the woods, I'm sure you've seen them, although you probably didn't call them harvestmen. You probably called them by the more common name, Daddy Longlegs. So first, let's talk about basic spider anatomy and compare that to insects. Insects have three body segments, a head, a thorax, and an abdomen, and three sets of legs, six legs. Spiders, on the other hand, have two body segments, the cephalothorax and the abdomen, and eight legs. Spiders don't have antenna or wings, which is probably just as well. If anyone was on the fence about their feelings for spiders, flying spiders would probably be a deal breaker. All spiders have fangs and most produce venom, although there are only a couple of spiders in the U.S. whose venom is what we call medically significant to people, meaning that unless you have an allergic reaction, a bite is not going to require any kind of medical intervention. Most, but not all spiders, have eight eyes, and all spiders produce silk, though not all spiders make a web, and I'll tell you more about those topics later. 
Okay, back to our not-a-spider daddy long legs. Let's see how they differ from actual spiders. Think about the daddy long legs you've seen. First of all, they don't have two body segments, just a single fused segment. They kind of look like a tic-tac with legs. Daddy long legs have a single pair of eyes, although some spiders only have one pair as well. But daddy long legs don't have silk glands and therefore aren't able to produce silk. While they do have eight legs, the second set of the harvestman's legs are actually more like antennae. They use them basically to smell and also to breathe through holes called spiracles that are found in these appendages. As a defense mechanism, a daddy long legs can drop any of their other legs, which don't grow back by the way, and that detached leg will twitch for up to an hour to distract a predator. But if they lose one of the second pair, they'll die. Occasionally, daddy long legs will gather in large groups, forming a ball, and this seems to be a way to conserve heat or as a defense against predators. Now, you may have heard that daddy long legs have the most potent venom in the world, but their fangs are too small and weak to puncture human skin. This is absolutely 100% pure BS. Daddy long legs don't have fangs or venom. They do have mandibles, but they don't bite. The only part of this myth that comes even close to the truth is that their mandibles are unable to break human skin. All right, let's get back to actual spiders. Spider-Man has his spidey sense, but after getting bit, Spider-Man might have needed to go to the optometrist. Spiders tend to be nearsighted. Most spiders have eight eyes, but the number of eyes can be as low as zero. There are cave-dwelling spiders that live in complete darkness, which have evolved to have no eyes at all. Spiders with two, four, or six eyes are also not uncommon. Typically, spiders have a main set of eyes that creates images, and the secondary eyes detect only light and shadow. The number and arrangement of eyes is the primary key to identifying the family to which that particular spider belongs. No matter how much of a spider fan you might be, nobody likes walking face first into a spider's web. Now, like I mentioned before, all spiders produce silk, but not all spiders build webs. Spiders can produce up to seven different kinds of silk, which they use for different purposes. Only some spider silk is sticky, thanks to what is basically microscopic drops of glue. This is the silk that makes up the bulk of webs and is used to catch prey. Other types of silk are used to build the frame for the web, structural components, attaching joints, the soft inner layer of the egg sac, the tougher outer layer of the egg sac, and drag lines, that web that the spider uses to lower itself from a high place, usually from its web to the ground to escape a threat. These different types of silk are produced in different silk glands in the spider's abdomen. Silk starts as a liquid protein stored in the silk glands before hardening into a solid form. Silk is hardened by the spider, acidifying the silk, a process which is much like that used in the commercial manufacture of material like nylon. Once the silk is solid, spiders can use their spinnerets, which are located on the outside of their abdomen, to produce the silky fibers used for web. Spiders will sometimes eat their webs to recycle the proteins into new silk. But spider silk has some amazing other properties. First of all, spider silk, for its size, really is stronger than steel. The golden orb weaver spider found in the tropics spins one of the strongest and largest webs of any spider in the world. Native peoples use the web of these spiders to make fishing lures, traps, and nets. 
In Madagascar and some other locations around the world, spider silk is used in making clothing. And here's a fun fact. Prior to World War II, spider silk was used to make the crosshairs in optical targeting devices like telescopes or gun scopes. In addition to being strong, spider silk has medicinal properties. The ancient Greeks and Romans used balled-up spider silk to help stop bleeding. Nowadays, synthetic and genetically engineered spider silks are being used in medical research for possible use in surgical sutures, artificial ligaments, and tissue repair. Spider silk is also electrically conductive. Since flying insects tend to gain a small static charge, this means they don't necessarily need to run into a spider web in order to get caught. If a statically charged insect flies close enough to the web, the static charge will pull the web into the insect. It's kind of like how a balloon will attract your hair to it with a static charge. How cool is that? With such a wide variety of spiders comes a wide variety of web types, but there are a few basic ones that you're likely to encounter. Spatial webs are what we usually think of as cobwebs. Generally, these are found indoors, in corners, and low traffic areas. While they look messy and disorganized, they're actually built that way intentionally in order to entangle the spider's prey. Frequently, they're anchored at the top and have many threads hanging down. Sheet webs and funnel webs share some common traits. Sheet webs appear as a flat mat of web material. I see them frequently on the grass in the morning when the dew is on them. If you look closely at a sheet web, you'll usually see a tunnel where the spider hides, waiting for its prey to walk across the web. A funnel web looks similar, but is, you guessed it, more funnel-shaped, hence the name. I've seen some very large funnel webs in the woods near my house. Like with sheet webs, the spider sits in the middle of the funnel, where it is both safer from potential predators and ready to react should anything get caught in the web. But orb webs are what we typically think of when we think of spider webs. These are those classic circular-shaped webs. The spiders that build these types of webs collectively are known as orb weavers. I've had the opportunity to observe several orb weavers in action, and if you get the chance, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating to watch. Building an orb web is a remarkable feat of engineering. The spider starts by floating a strand of web horizontally across the spot where it wants to build. Once this line snags on something, the spider reinforces it, kind of like going across a zip line. It then creates a frame for the spiral, usually anchoring the frame in seven spots. Once the frame is ready, the radii or spokes are put in. The spider connects them together in a messy mass in the center of the web. When the spokes are done, the spider will create a widely spaced spiral using non-sticky web, attaching it at each spoke. This is just to add strength to the web. The spiral is created starting from the outside and working towards the center. Then the spider puts in the more closely spaced capture spiral using sticky web, again attaching it at each spoke. The last thing the spider does is to eat the messy mass in the center and rebuild it more neatly. After that, all that's left to do is wait. Some orb weavers wait in the center of the web, pulling the web tight with their legs so they can feel the vibrations when something gets stuck. Other orb weavers hide off to the side using a trigger line connected to the web in order to detect their prey. Once something is caught in the web, the spider quickly runs out and immobilizes it. Most orb weavers build their web at dusk and destroy their web in the morning, usually by eating it so they can recycle those proteins. 
They build a new web each night, although some species will reuse the same frame for several nights as long as it remains intact. The process of building the web takes about an hour to an hour and a half. I recently saw an orb web that had been constructed about 40 feet over a road. The spiral was normal sized, but the frame of the web must have stretched a good 50 to 60 feet across. Now that was one motivated spider. Now I know I said that spiders don't have wings, and they don't, but some spiders can fly kinda sorta. It's called ballooning, and it's the process by which some spiders, most commonly small spiders and spiderlings, disperse. If you've watched the movie Charlotte's Web, this process is shown at the end of the movie, when all of Charlotte's babies hatch and climb up the fence post to disperse, much to poor Wilbur's dismay. And if it doesn't choke you up a little when you see it, well, you have no heart. But with the exception of all the talking between the spiders and Wilbur, ballooning works pretty much like it's shown in the movie. The spiderlings climb to a high place and release a few strands of silk. The silk is caught by the wind and carries the spider off. On a windless day, that electrical conductivity of the silk that I mentioned means that the static field of the earth itself can provide lift too. Ballooning is generally practiced by small spiders and spiderlings due to their weight, but there are some larger spiders that will engage in ballooning. Females of several species of velvet spider, which measures about a half an inch long, will create a triangular sheet of web up to four feet long and four feet wide. These tropical spiders have been observed using these self-made sails to rise on currents of warm air on hot days. Most ballooning spiders go only a short distance, but occasionally they can get caught in stronger winds or updrafts and be carried hundreds of miles. So now I want to talk about some specific spiders. I'll start with the two species in the United States that are considered, quote, medically significant, unquote, because those are the ones that people ask about the most and are possibly the most feared, the black widow and the brown recluse. Black widows are pretty widespread in the U.S., Female black widows are pretty easy to identify. They're large, shiny black spiders, generally with a red hourglass shape mark on the underside of their abdomen. I say generally because this red mark may appear as a spot or two dots or a stripe rather than a true hourglass shape. But all the black widows I have encountered had a very clear hourglass shape. Males look completely different. They're much smaller than the females, about a third of the size, and they're more brown, tan, and orangish. The black widow gets its name from the fact that she will often eat the male after mating, although this is not uncommon in the spider world. But if the female is well-fed and receptive to mating, the male stands a better chance of surviving the encounter. Females are able to store sperm, so they don't need to mate prior to every egg laying. They lay eggs one to two times per season by constructing a pear-shaped egg sac containing 50 to 100 eggs. Incubation takes about 30 days. Black widows build a spatial web, usually in a dark, undisturbed area like a basement, a garage, an attic, or a wood pile. Their webs are said to be exceptionally strong. Bites usually occur when someone accidentally disturbs the spider. Now, only the female black widow is medically significant, but it's important to note that most black widow bites don't lead to ill effects. The widow's fangs are small and not very strong. They're generally unable to pierce most skin. 
I think we have this idea that if we get bitten by a black widow or any other medically significant spider, it means that we're going to die. But that's just not the case. If you get bitten by a black widow, should you see a doctor? Well, if you start experiencing symptoms like extreme pain, muscle cramping, nausea, dizziness, or difficulty breathing, then yes, absolutely. Children and the elderly are more at risk for severe reactions. But I want to point out that in 2013, nearly 2,000 black widow bites were reported to poison control centers in the U.S. And of those 2,000 reports, only 14 required medical attention and none resulted in death. So the chances of a severe reaction are very low. The other medically significant spider found in the U.S. is the brown recluse, identified by the violin-shaped marking on the top of its cephalothorax and its three pair of eyes. Brown recluse spiders are small, about the size of a quarter, including their legs, and can be found in the south-central United States. They only come about as far north as southern Nebraska and Indiana. As the name implies, they're reclusive. They're not aggressive and will only bite if provoked or feeling threatened. There are many stories of people discovering that they have been living with many brown recluse spiders in their homes, but not suffering any bites. Like the Black Widow, they're generally found in places and under objects that are rarely disturbed. Most bites, when they do occur, happen, again, when somebody inadvertently disturbs the spider. And in many states where the brown recluse does not live, it still gets blamed for bites that present in a similar way. The bite of a recluse frequently causes an initial sharp stinging sensation that quickly goes away. A small white blister usually rises at the site of the bite, surrounded by a large, congested, and swollen area. On rare occasions, within three days, a systematic reaction may occur, causing the victim to experience restlessness, fever, chills, nausea, weakness, and joint pain. This is because the spider's venom contains an enzyme that destroys cell membranes, causing the tissue to gradually slough away, exposing underlying tissue. Thus, the bite begins with a red zone and progresses to a gradually enlarging open sore. The sore may take as long as three to four months to completely heal. The biggest risk from a recluse bite is not the bite itself, but secondary infection as a result of the time it takes for that wound to heal. But what about tarantulas, you might be asking? Aren't they also medically significant? Contrary to what you've seen in the movies, where tarantulas are meant to be scary because of their size, no, they're not dangerous. That's why many tarantulas are kept as pets. Generally speaking, the venom of a tarantula poses no threat to humans, and their bites are described, at worst, as being like a bee sting. Tarantulas prefer warmer, drier climates and are therefore found in the desert southwest in California. This time of year, September and October, the males will often be seen in large numbers. It's known as a migration, but that's really a misnomer. They aren't moving to a different location. They're out looking for love. When I lived on the central coast of California in the early 2000s, I remember the road to a particular beach was often closed during this time of year to protect the wandering tarantulas. Male tarantulas create a ball of webbing and deposit a small amount of sperm. They then carry this ball in their pedipalps as they go wandering in search of a female. When they find a female's burrow, they tap on the silk lining of the female's burrow to get her attention. 
The male then engages in an elaborate mating display, a dance if you will. If the female is receptive, the sperm will be deposited and the male gets out of there as fast as his eight legs will carry him to avoid getting eaten by the female. In the wild, male tarantulas can live 10 to 12 years and females about twice that. Now, wolf spiders are a familiar sight here at Dispatches HQ, not to mention one of my favorites. Some species of wolf spiders can get pretty big, over an inch, and that's not including the legs. But most are about the size of a quarter, legs included. Now, wolf spiders don't spin a web, but instead ambush their prey. And wolf spiders have some other unique qualities. First of all, unlike many other spiders that have poor vision, wolf spiders have excellent vision, third best in the spider world, including night vision. Like other animals that hunt at night, wolf spiders have a tapetum lucidum, a reflective layer of tissue in the eyes. One of my favorite things is to go out at night with my headlamp, look around my woods, and see the dozens of glittering green spider eyes reflected back at me. It always makes me smile. And maybe it's weird, but I always greet my spider friends and wish them hunting success. I have this idea that someday I may need them to come to my aid, so I want to stay in their good graces. Wolf spiders are also unique in how they carry their egg sacs and care for their young. The egg sac is attached to the spinnerets at the end of the abdomen of the female. This requires her to hold her abdomen up in order to avoid dragging the egg sac on the ground. When the spiderlings hatch, they climb up on top of their mother's abdomen. She will carry them around like this for several weeks until they're big enough to disperse and fend for themselves. No other spider is known to carry their young this way. Another favorite of mine is the garden spider. Garden spiders are large, green and yellow orb-weaving spiders. In addition to being brightly colored, their web is distinctive for the zigzag pattern woven into it. There's some debate as to the function of this zigzag. It might serve to help keep birds from flying into it, or it might work as camouflage for the spider. Nobody really knows for sure. Their size makes them a bit scary for many people, but rest assured that the garden spider wants to stay where its name suggests, outside, in your garden. It will help control some of the insects that you don't want around your fruits and veggies. It's doing you a favor. Now, bolus spiders are technically an orb-weaving spider. I say technically because bolus spiders don't build a web, but instead have evolved a much more interesting hunting technique. Female bolus spiders produce a pheromone that mimics the pheromone of female moths. The spider will produce a thread with one or more sticky blobs on the end, and when the male moth comes looking for Mrs. Wright, or at least Mrs. Wright now, the spider flings the blob and snags him, and they're remarkably accurate. It's not unlike a fly fisherman casting a lure or a cowboy lassoing cattle. Bolus spiders are sometimes called fishing spiders for the way they hunt, but fishing spiders are actually a completely different spider and unique in their own right. Fishing spiders can be fairly large and robust, and this allows them to tackle prey that are bigger than themselves. They're nocturnal, hunting when their main predators, birds, are not active. And they hunt by wading at the edge of a body of water, back legs on shore, and the rest of their body on the water, with their legs stretched out. This allows them to sense the vibrations carried on the water, just like other spiders feel the vibrations in a web. They have a range of vibration-detecting organs, including very sensitive hairs on their feet and legs. 
Fishing spiders are able to tell what is causing the vibrations that the water is carrying. To distinguish the drawn-out, erratic vibrations of a struggling insect from the one-off vibrations caused by, say, falling leaves or the background noise of the wind or flow of water around rocks and other obstacles, as well as the vibrations from predators like trout. They're also able to identify the distance to and the direction of the source of the vibrations. When these vibrations reveal that there's something floundering within range, they use the surface tension to run across the surface of the water and grab the insect before it can extract itself from the water and fly to safety. Some fishing spiders use a drag line to prevent themselves from speeding past the prey. Fishing spiders can also climb beneath the water. Air gets trapped in the body hairs and forms a thin film over the whole surface of the body, giving them the appearance of fine polished silver. Spiders breathe with book lungs which are found in the abdomen, and in fishing spiders, these lungs open into that air film, allowing the spider to breathe while they're submerged. The trapped air makes them very buoyant though, and if they don't hold on to a rock or a plant stem, they'll float to the surface, and when they pop out, they're completely dry thanks to the hydrophobic hairs covering their bodies. While fishing spiders mainly eat insects, some larger species are actually able to catch small fish or tadpoles. Now the last family of spider I want to talk about are jumping spiders. With around 6,000 species, jumping spiders are the largest family of spiders. Like wolf spiders and fishing spiders, jumping spiders don't spin a web, but instead actively hunt for prey. They also have some of the best vision of any spider, and they can see in color. As their name suggests, jumping spiders are capable of large leaps, several times the length of their body, although, safety first, they usually attach a drag line before they jump, just in case they don't stick the landing. One of the most entertaining things about jumping spiders, though, particularly the brightly colored male peacock jumping spider, is their courtship dance. Male jumping spiders conduct an elaborate mating dance involving leg-waving, sliding, and zigzagging. If you want to go down one of the best internet holes ever, Google peacock spider mating dance. Or if you're on TikTok, search for mini robo-muppets. Cutest spiders ever. Guaranteed. Well, hopefully I've convinced you not to kill spiders just because they're spiders. If you need a reason other than the pest control they provide or the fact that they too are a food source for other animals, I'll leave you with this. Hummingbirds use spider web to build their nests. So if you remove that garden spider from your yard, not only will you have more insects to bother you, you might be driving away the hummingbirds. If you won't do it for me, do it for the hummingbirds. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Don't forget to leave a like and follow to stay up on all the latest episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting future episodes by becoming a patron. You can do that by heading over to the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you have a message for me, you can reach me at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty.
Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and threw her out the window, the window, the second story window. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and threw her out the window. This podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission. <laughs>